We're told uh, in the uh, opening verses of the book of Amos that Amos uh, prophesied in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This king was uh, better known as Jeroboam Jeroboam the second, and we read about him in uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verses 23-27. 2 Kings 14, 23 says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years years. So Jeroboam II reigned for a very long time over the nation of Israel, and his reign was a prosperous one. Uh, It might possibly be one of the most prosperous uh, reigns of Israel's history. Uh, It was a time of success, uh, of wealth, of ease. Uh, If you read on in the book of Amos, Uh, you discover that people had both winter and summer homes. And generally you only have two homes if you're doing fairly well in life. And that was the case for many in Israel. There was plentiful food, the harvest was good, and Israel had success over her enemies. But all wasn't well. Despite, on the outside, everything seeming good and prosperous and easy, all was not well in Israel, because we learn this about Jeroboam. Verse 24 of that same chapter, it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. Uh, Despite everything looking good and rosy on the outside... Jeroboam was evil. Uh, It was a time of success, but it was also a time of sin. Uh, It was a time of ease, but also a time of evil. It was a time of wealth, but also a time of wickedness. It's probably true to say that the most dangerous time in a nation's or even in an individual's life, is when everything is going well. We tend to want to avoid uh, catastrophe and adversity, don't we? We want things to be easy, and that's understandable, and that's not wrong. But the tragedy is that so often when things are going well and things are easy, that's when we are most spiritually vulnerable because we forget about God. When we're in pain, we cry out to him, or we're more likely to cry out to him. But when it's easy, we start to believe that we don't need him. Uh, Prosperity can often give us a false sense of security. Uh, We have this strange idea which, uh, even for people who know in their heads that this is not the case, Nevertheless, when things are going well, we, can't, we almost can't but help but think that God is smiling at us. The bank balance is good. Uh, we have a comfortable home. Uh, we're enjoying our job. Uh, family life is good. And when all these things are in place, 
we think, well, God must be pleased with me. But that is a very dangerous assumption to make. Uh, That was the situation that Israel in at this time. But God was far from smiling at them. And that really is the theme of these opening chapters of Amos. And you could say almost the whole book of Amos. God has a problem with Israel, even though from their perspective, times have never been better. Uh, Look at the opening or verse 2 of Amos chapter 1. It says, and he, that's Amos, said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. God, as it were, gathers all the nations before him. Uh, He, as it were, is like a lion roaring from his mountain of Zion, and he cries out to all the nations round about. And uh, this is anticipating uh, the great day of judgment at the end. Uh, The Bible very clearly teaches that there will one day be a day of judgment. Many people mock it, many people ridicule it, and think it's just a fairy tale, but the Bible speaks of it being all too real. And all of us, without exception, will have to give an account to God. I don't know if you ever think about that day, incidentally. Uh, What would that be like uh, to be using the language of this verse, to be gathered around God's throne as God, who is never short of time, speaks to every individual and asks every single individual, you and I included, what did you do with the life I gave you? As he calls us all to give an account of the life we have lived. Uh, I'm almost certain there won't be a cue in that, but I sometimes imagine what it'd be like to be in this imaginary cue, uh, waiting for me to give that account to God. What thoughts will I be thinking? What things will come to my mind? Will it be good things? Or will it be evil things that I have done? It's a solemn thought to imagine that day of judgment. But that's the picture given to us here. And as I say, God gathers all the nations before him. And one by one, he speaks to the various different nations around Israel. Uh, He speaks to Syria in verses 3 to 5. He speaks to Philistia. In verses 6 to 8. He speaks to Tyre in verses 9 to 10. He speaks to Edom in verses 11 to 12. He speaks to Ammon in verses 13 and 15. He speaks to Moab in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And he speaks to Judah in verses 4, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. And in each case, he tells them what he has against them. He tells Syria that he has this against them that they attacked Gilead and threshed it with iron. 
he tells the Philistines that he has a, this against them, that they carried Israelites away captive and they sold them as slaves to Edom. Uh, he says to Tyre, similarly, he says that they carried away captives from Israel. Uh, he says to Edom that Edom pursued his brother with the sword. You might know that Edom was descended from Esau, and Esau was the brother of Jacob, who was the ancestor of the Israelites. And God rebukes them for their treatment of their brother Israel. Uh, Ammon, he has very strong words for, he says, you ripped up pregnant women in Gilead as you enlarged your border. Uh, they wanted to gain more land and they horrifically mistreated the people of the land in order to get more. Uh, Moab, he rebukes them for burning the bones of the king of Edom and he rebukes Judah for despising God's law. Now, it's interesting. Uh, only Judah is rebuked for despising the law of God. Uh, the other nations aren't rebuked for that because they weren't given the law in the same way that Judah and Israel were. Nevertheless, God still has something against them because they knew better than to act in the way they did. And this is a good principle to get fixed in our minds. God always judges us based on what we know. As it says in the book of Romans, those who, are who have law are judged with law, but those without law are judged without law. But all of us, no matter who we are, all of us, on occasion, go against our own consciences. So no one is innocent before God. Some, perhaps, are more guilty than others, but all of us, uh, God has something against all of us because none of us behave the way we know we should act all the time. And this is why uh, God is right to judge the whole world, uh, not just those who have read the Bible or heard about Jesus. Now, have you ever wondered that? Uh, perhaps you've wondered, how can God judge some people on a Pacific island somewhere where the gospel's never gone, or some uh, tribe in South America where the gospel has not reached yet? Well, this is the reason. Because even in that darkest depth of the jungle... There are people who ignore their own conscience, who don't do what they know they should do. That is a universal uh, uh, characteristic of human beings. We go against what we know to be right. And so God gathers all these nations and he tells them what he has against them as he brings them to judgment. And you've got to imagine that while these judgments are being given out, as Amos speaks them, uh, Israel, the children of Israel, are kind of, as it were, uh, looking on and sort of chuckling. Because they're thinking, yes, God is giving it to them. 
Finally, the nations are getting what they deserve. Their enemy Philistia, their enemy Edom, their enemy Ammon, all these enemies who have done them so much harm, finally they're thinking, yes, God is giving to them what they deserve. I imagine them a little bit like a favoured sibling standing behind their parent as the parent tells off their siblings. That's what Israel are like as they hear these judgments. It's like the teacher's pet in a classroom. And as the teacher rebukes the rest of the class, the teacher's pet sits smugly, knowing they're not in trouble. At least that's the case until God turns his attention on Israel. I don't know if you noticed, in chapter 2, verse 6, God does just that. He turns from the nations and he speaks to Israel. And far from ignoring Israel or blessing Israel or saying what good people they are, God has more to say against Israel than any of the other nations. Uh, Did you notice what uh, God said to Israel? Um, I didn't write down uh, the verse, which is a mistake, but I've got it written down here. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, let me repeat that, because there's an unusual word in there. It says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, Israel think what God should say is, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'm going to let you off. Therefore, I'm going to do you good. Therefore, I'm not going to rebuke you for your sin. Instead, he says, he obviously says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. In other words, what God is saying, precisely because I have bestowed my favor upon you, precisely because I've chosen you above all other nations of the earth, Therefore, you're even more responsible. You have even more responsibility before me. So far from ignoring you, I'm going to focus my attention on you. And there were far more verses given to God's complaints, if I can put it that way, against Israel than any other of the nations. All the other nations have about two or three verses dedicated to them. But Israel has ten whole verses. Uh, Every one of the other nations are rebuked for one thing in particular. Uh, God points to one thing that he has against them. But there were at least seven rebukes for Israel. Uh, He rebukes them for the way they mistreat the poor. Uh, He rebukes them because they cause the meek people to stumble. Uh, He rebukes those who are sexually promiscuous. Uh, He rebukes those who dishonor God's name. He rebukes those who worship idols. He rebukes those who break their vows. And he rebukes them for telling the prophets 
those who speak God's word, to stay silent. With these seven rebukes, God lays Israel's guilt bare. You know, it's funny, really. Many people read these sort of passages of the Bible and they get uncomfortable. And they think, I don't like these parts of the Bible. Can't we go back to the Sermon on the Mount or uh, some of the nice passages in the Gospels or in the New Testament where it seems so much nicer? But do you hear what God's saying here? God is saying he hates mistreatment of the poor. We can get behind that, can't we? Uh, Surely we agree that it is bad when the poor are mistreated. Uh, He rebukes those who break their vows. Surely we can get behind that as well. Uh, Perhaps we have friends who have broken their promises to us and we know the grief and the trouble that can cause. So when God states these rebukes, when he rebukes his people in this way, he's not showing himself to be harsh. He's showing himself to be just and showing himself to be good. And really, that's the kind of God we want, isn't it? Do you want an evil God? Do you want a God who winks at sin? Do you want a God who ignores the poor being mistreated, who ignores vows being broken? Of course we don't. We want a God who is good and right. The problem is we naturally aren't. And so we get very uncomfortable when we hear these pointed judgments which God gives against our sin. Nevertheless, they merely show us how good God is and how bad we are. On that note, uh, do you ever ponder what your sins must feel like to God? Perhaps you've never thought about that. Um, What does God feel when we commit sin against him, when we ignore his instructions, when we foolishly go our own way and not his. Well, in these verses, uh, we are told what God feels about the sin of mankind. And look at verse 13. God says, Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. Uh, In these verses, uh, God says that he is like someone who is weighed down by a heavy burden. Uh, Israel is like a load on his back. That's what our sins are like to God. We often refer to Pilgrim's Progress, don't we, with Christian, who has his burden on his back. And that's what guilt can feel like to us. Uh, At least it's a healthy sign if it does feel like a burden. But God describes that as what it feels like to him with our sin. When we ignore him, when we do not listen to him, he is burdened by our sin, especially by the sin 
of his people. But you might say, well, what's the application for us? So we see from these verses that God will judge all nations, or he'll judge all people, especially those who he has shown greatest love to, his own people, Israel. But what does that mean for us today? Well, the New Testament tells us what it means for us. If we listen to the words of Peter in his first letter, he says this, he says, The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them who suffer according to the will of God commit their keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Did you hear what Peter said there? He says, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The truth is, sometimes we can feel a little bit like Israel here. And we think God is going to judge all the nations. He's going to judge all those people out there. But I'm okay. I'm fine. Uh, Because I'm saved, therefore my behavior does not matter. But what the Bible says is, if we are saved, if we have been forgiven, our behavior matters all the more. Just because our sin has been forgiven does not mean God now winks at us or winks at our bad behavior. Instead, God is all the more concerned about how we behave on a day-to-day basis. Do you remember what the book of Hebrews says? It says, those who God loves, he disciplines, he chastens. If you are a Christian here this evening, if you are a person who is trusting in Christ, whose sins have been forgiven by Christ because you've come to him, and yet you're walking in some way which is opposed to God, you're clinging to some sin, uh, clinging to something that you know God's word says is wrong, then you are in a very dangerous position. Because the Bible says those who God loves, he disciplines. And the longer we walk in sin without discipline, we're demonstrating that perhaps we're not part of God's people at all. Because God will not allow his children to keep turning from him. He will bring things into their lives to turn them back to him. Not because he hates us, not because he's simply a harsh dictator, but because he loves us and he wants us to walk closely with him. In a sense, those who don't trust in God, their behavior is not irrelevant because on judgment day, God will deal with it. But God is more concerned, infinitely more concerned about the behavior of his own people. So when we read these verses, they should be a wake-up call to us. 
If we're coasting through life, if we're thinking, well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter. God's saying to us, wake up. Judgment must begin at the house of God. It's not that our behavior no longer matters. It matters all the more. Not because we need to be good in order to be saved, but because God saved us in order that we might be good. And God is serious about that mission. God is serious about that task. But let me close with an encouragement. Uh, Let me close with some good words. Because what I've expressed so far is much of the book of Amos. Uh, God repeatedly again and again draws the people's attention to their sin and the ways in which they've ignored him and they're not listening to him and they're ignoring his law. But right at the end of the book of Amos, God gives a wonderful message of hope. Uh, He gives a wonderful message of hope to those who will turn back to him. Now let me read verse 11 and 12. Uh, God says to Amos, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. All the way through this book, God says to Israel, you're like a tent which is broken in pieces. Uh, You're like a building in ruins. Because of your sin... Because of your neglect of me, you are enduring devastation. But I'm able to rebuild what is broken. I'm able to bring you back. And that's the same promise for us today. I don't know your individual states. Perhaps you're someone and you have grown cold uh, in your walk with God. Uh, Perhaps you've done things, done things which you know are wrong and which are sinful and which God hates, and you feel very distant away from him. Perhaps you feel like that ruined building that God speaks of. Well, Amos has a message of hope. Uh, Though you may have sinned, though you may have turned your back on him, God has not turned his back on you. Um, And if you notice the next few verses at the end of Amos, uh, verse 13 of chapter 9, God says, Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seeds. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. God says, spiritually, you're desert. Physically, you're doing great. Physically, you're prospering, but spiritually, you are a dry wasteland. But I'm able to make you like a harvest. I'm able to make the mountains drip with sweet wine again. Just because you may have failed God in some way in your life, just because somehow you may have drifted a long way from him, doesn't mean there is not hope left for you. Just to close, I read a story, which I believe is true, uh, about a a Canadian girl named Erica. And on 
February the 24th, 2001, uh, she was, it says here, only one year old, which I find difficult to believe, but apparently when she was one year old, she wandered out of her house and she spent the entire night uh, in the Edmonton winter you know, up in Canada, and it was freezing cold. And eventually her mother found her, and Erica appeared to be totally frozen. Her legs were stiff, her body was frozen, and all signs of life appeared to be gone. But Erica was treated uh, at the health centre, and she was resuscitated. And to the amazement of all, there appeared to be no sign of brain damage, and the doctors were able to give Erica a clear prognosis. That little girl, Erica, was frozen, apparently lifeless. You would have thought there'd been no hope, and yet she was able to be resuscitated. And if human beings can do that, uh, if human healthcare can do that, then God can revive us as well. We might feel very cold. Uh, we might feel frozen from God. We may feel distant from him and completely out in the dark. But if we just turn back to him, he's the great physician. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. The lesson from the book of Amos is first of all, God is just and our behavior matters. But secondly, there is hope if we have turned from him. We can turn back to him and Christ is merciful and he can resuscitate us again. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen as our final hymn, number 644. And it's a hymn of faith in God, which looks to the riches we have in him. Not riches that mean we can live however we like, but riches that mean that God will not allow us to live however we like, but he will discipline us and bring us back to him. It's 644. How vast the treasure we possess, how rich thy bounty, King of grace. This world is ours and worlds to come. Earth is our Earth is our lodge and heaven our home. So we'll close by singing number 644.